If you have your scripture with you, open it up first to the Old Testament reading. I'm going to be reading out of the book of Numbers first, chapter 21, verses 4 and 9. Then we'll, we'll be going to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Let me know when you are in the book of Numbers. Um, got a phone call this morning, I, I, actually yesterday, uh, I was informed that Dennis is back in the hospital. Uh, I did see Pam. There she is. She's never there. Now she's there. Uh, I was there in here. Uh, but uh, we're with you. We're with your prayers. I see Candice here, and we rejoice to see Candice here with her mom. I see June here, and we rejoice to see June here, worshiping here with us. Pray for the Curleys. They're going through their own stuff with their battles with cancer. But we are a family, and we love one another. We support one another through prayer in many other ways in which we are able to. Um, I do know that others are struggling with things, but guess who knows about those struggles? God knows about those struggles, so we are not alone. You found your book, your numbers? That's in the Pentateuch, and Numbers chapter 21, the scripture reads as follows. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom, or Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink. And we hate this horrible manna. Mm. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Uh-huh. Then people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of the poisonous snake, attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze, and attached it to a pole, then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Word of the Lord. I didn't hear that. Word of the Lord. Okay. Tough one, right? Luke 17. Change to the New Testament. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin. But what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to throw thrown it into the sea with a milestone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, Rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, and each time turns against and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. 
the apostles said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. The Lord answered, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and thrown into the sea. And it would obey you. Word of the Lord. Okay, we heard it. Now, um, faith is a very interesting element because faith means to people whatever they want it to mean. I, I understood faith when I began to drive. One element of faith when I began to drive. And I had to trust that even though I was breaking the speed limit, don't tell anyone. Even though I was breaking the speed limit in Salt Fork Lake, Ohio, where I was doing my license, and almost went off a ditch that ended up in the lake hundreds of feet down there, my uncle still doesn't know that, but if he hears this tape, he's going to learn about it. Uh-oh. So uh, I realized that I had to have faith to put my foot in that pedal that was supposed to break the car. And guess what happened? The car stopped. It worked. So at 16, 17 years old, I kind of learned, you got to have faith to drive these things. Because they tend to do things on their own, especially in the winter. So, so, you know, faith is a difficult concept to grasp. And people in society has turned it into whatever they want it to be. However, God, knowing that, in God's wonderful wisdom, he goes ahead and he defines it for us so that we do not get confused about what faith is. I mean, I'm talking about, and I mean, I mean, the God kind of faith. I was watching Porky Pig this week. I mean, I mean, I mean. So faith, as this definition holds from the New Living Translation, is the confidence, should I say the assurance, should I say the certainty, that what we hope will actually happen. It gives us assurance, should I say confidence, should I say expectation, should I say certainty, about things we cannot see. Contrary to faith, guess what is the opposite of faith? Nah. Doubt is a mask of the opposite of faith. I want to hear it. It's fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. That's why I find amazing that in Scripture, God has delivered us 365 passages, one for our modern-day calendar, saying, do not fear. 365 times, Scripture encourages, do not fear. So if God is asking us not to fear, what is the opposite of fear? Faith. Can I hear that? What is the opposite of fear? What is the opposite of faith? Pop quiz at the end. I'm a teaching elder. They took away the reverend title and all that stuff. So now we're teaching elders. So now I'm teaching. Now, faith is not a set of beliefs or a set of ideas that carry what you think is your right doctrine. That is a misconception of faith. Faith is not the collection of religious or theological or philosophical ideas that you collect to believe in. That is not faith. Faith, faith is not your devotion. 
Oh, people, they, they have such wonderful faith. Because they're all the time at church? No. You have heard me say here that you can go to Burger King 365 days of the year and you will never become a hamburger. It's true. You will never become a hamburger because it depends on why you go. So if you go to church, I know people that have been in church for 60 years and they don't have the foggiest idea what they're here to do. They have some religious idea and they have a what's called a shallow faith, a baby faith, an immature faith. You see, faith is not even the idea or the ability to manipulate God into whatever you want. Actually, when I read the definition, faith is the confidence of what we hope, that we hope has to be in line with God's will. You'll see it at the end of the service, at the end of the message. That we hope has to be in line with God's will. It gives the assurance of the things that are not that we yet cannot see because it has to jive, it has to connect, it has to be of God's of God's perfect will. For so it's not the ability to manipulate and get whatever we want or whatever we wish from God. I was involved in that movement some years ago, and we used to talk about a very big faith with a very little God that we can put in our hands and tell Him how I wanted it, where I wanted it, and how to dispense it. And you know what? They're not all that wrong altogether because there is a power of faith that does encourage you, that does move you to ask for the unseen, that does move you to ask for that that we, we, do not, that we hope for but we do not yet see. And that is part of the healing faith. But it's not manipulative faith. And finally, faith is not a jump, a leap into ignorance into irrationality, into the things that we don't know. Faith is a jump into the ways God thinks, which may not always be the way we think, as Scripture says. So people in churches that adhere to any of these definitions or misconceptions or deceitful ways of faith have what's called a shallow faith. A shallow faith, meaning that it's very superficial, a narrow faith, a flat faith, an empty faith a hollow faith, or a faith that is unsound, a faith that is convenient, oh, a faith that accommodates to me and not me to it. Uh, that is, we are experts at that in our culture, to accommodate God to one hour once a week. The God, the sovereign creator of the universe, we control and we box into one hour once a week. What a shallow faith. What a convenient faith. What a materialistic faith. And we adopt the gospel, the faith of God to our faith, which is non-demanding, non-challenging, a faith that is convenient, a faith that only really responds to death, because that's all we care about. You know what that is? A self-centered faith. The story that we read in Numbers the story that we read in the book of Numbers is one of six or eight, depending how you want to define, stories of murmuring of the people of Israel in the wilderness. The people of Israel were in hospice. Let me say it again. 
the people of Israel were in hospice. They were dying. They were enslaved. They were abused. They were controlled by others. They didn't have freedom. They didn't have freedom to worship their God. They didn't have freedom to talk about their God the way they were supposed to talk about their God. So they were enslaved. They were about to die. They were being killed. They were being abused. And suddenly, God gives them the option to get out. God gives them the freedom to go out, and they left. Actually, uh, uh, God convinced uh, Pharaoh, you remember how? Kind of a strong, strong, strong coercive, con- you know, kind of convincing. And then he let them go. But then he had second thoughts. Go after them. And the same individuals who saw the miracles of God, who saw them, who saw the eyes, who saw that blood turning water, who saw that the pestilence, the same people who walked out in the wilderness, and the same people who saw the cloud of during the day so the sun would not parch them, the same people who God showed himself as the cloud of light at night so that they could have light at night and warmth in the desert, those same people were nagging. The first, oh, there are six stories of this. They're fascinating. The first three of them, uh, their stories were, no, they're hungry and they're thirsty, and they complain, and then God gives them water, God gives them food, but they keep on going and they keep on complaining. There's nothing that this man can do to satisfy these people. And he wasn't about to either. Because they're God's people, and, God, and Moses knows that. You see, so the pattern of the story is the following. The people experience discomfort in the desert. They complain against God and the leaders. People tell God what to do. You know what they tell God what to do? Take us back to the way we were. Take us back to Egypt. Because at least in Egypt, we had garlic, we had onions, we had other foods. Here, we just have this stale water and this manna. Did I say that right? Not manna, manna. The Georgia way. It was practicing yesterday. Manna. <laughs> Not the Miami way, manna. <laughs> See, they were just stubborn. So they tell God what to do. God sends judgment to, uh, because of their lack of faith. That's what it is. Their complaints, their nagging in the desert is nothing but lack of faith. It's a shallow faith, a faith that really depended on circumstances. I'm okay with God uh, while I have my water. I'm okay with God while I get my way. Once I don't get my way and I have to get out of my comfort zone, I have to get out of what I'm used to, I'm not well with God. God The gods must have gone crazy. You see, but the people, then God sends judgment. The first three, by the way, God doesn't send judgment when the people are asking for water, when the people are asking for food. It is when I think it gets a little bit overwhelming and they just keep at it and at it and complaining and complaining and complaining. Then God sends stuff. Happens to them. A group got leprosy. A group was kicked out of the camp for a long time. A group fell when the land opened. They went down. Another group was bitten by snakes and died. Judgment is part of the punishment. When people have lack of faith, they perish because they have no faith. My people perish because they don't have a vision. My people perish because they don't have a vision. But always God is merciful in the story. God is very merciful in the story because then the people go back to the one they were complaining at. Rescue us. And God rescues them. But they did not believe God. 
though God showed them power and mercy throughout the wilderness, including freedom. They did not believe God, though God delivered them from the waters. They did not believe God, though God provided for their everyday need. Today we see people running away from God, the God that wishes to bless us, a God that wishes to restore us, a God that wishes to give us the best for us, and we run away from that God because we have our own faith, because we have the biggest idol and the biggest enemy that the American church has is my opinion. That's the biggest idol we have. My opinion. In spite of God's word. In spite of God's vision. In spite of God's showing the miracles that God has shown to people. You see, a shallow faith is turns inward. A shallow faith cares about me, myself, and I, what I'm used to. A deeper faith, which is the message, the message going to a deeper faith requires that we abandon ourselves into the adventures of God like Abraham did. The Abraham had that GPS when God asked him to leave or and his relatives and go into the wilderness. He didn't have a GPS. He had to choose whether to go out there in fear or to go out there in joy, trusting a God that has a wonderful adventure of faith for us. And that's what Abraham chose. A shallow faith relies on good works and good deeds for the community. But a vibrant, deeper faith does the good work for the community, but goes beyond and makes connections and builds relationships with that community. Just doesn't do the handout and forget you. It builds relationship. It attempts to transform and change lives, not just talk about it. A shallow faith is institutional. It relies on what's certain. It doesn't want the mysterious. It doesn't want the revelation. It doesn't want the spiritual element because they don't know it and they are comfortable with certainty. They are comfortable and they reject anything that is mysterious, anything that is uncomfortable, anything that may be even be art and inspiring to others. A shallow faith is a, is a faith that's non-challenging, that you, as I said earlier, can accommodate to your lifestyle, can accommodate to your idol of your opinion. It is a faith that does not move. It is a faith that kills. It is a faith that brings death. And that's what the three churches were experiencing before we came. You were all experiencing death in your own congregations. Sooner or later, that's what's going to hate us. That's the truth. And then came the changes. But we don't want the changes. However, a deeper faith, which is what I'm calling you to do this morning, to embrace a deeper faith, embraces change because they come from God and they are for God's people. A shallow faith is ruled by fear. But a deeper faith is ruled by the adventure of the Spirit. A shallow faith is ruled by convenience a deeper faith is ruled by challenging and excitement. A shallow faith is ruled by trusting in themselves and their opinion. A deeper faith takes the adventure to risk, to trust God and believe God. Then Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew, If any of you want to be my followers, you must turn from your selfish ways Take up my cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your past life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you were to gain the whole world but lose your own soul? If anything's worth more than your soul? 
For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. The people of Israel lacked in faith, and they acted that lack of faith. The people of Israel is just like us. That's why we got the stories. Remember last week? Why we have all these stories? We have all these stories so that we can believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. And that by believing, we then have real life, the life that God, God offers Acknowledging that we need to grow in faith was the acknowledgement of the disciples when God put it difficult for them. You mean you have to forgive all these offenders? You mean you have to forgive all these rebellious people? You mean you have to really walk the path with them? Yes. And if they do it every hour of the day, I got to do it. We got to do it. We got to forgive and move on. But then they saw their weakness. They saw their need. They saw that it was more difficult to forgive than to retain resentment. And they asked the Lord, will you increase our faith? This was asked of Jesus several times. And at one moment, he responded, the mulberry tree. And every time I think of the mulberry tree, I think of Mary Cantrell. Isn't that where you used to live? In mulberry? Moultrie. I get away with it because I'm from Miami, you know. I was hoping because every time I read this Mulberry, I was thinking American Trail because she was from Moultrie, Mulberry. Close enough. You see, but, but, and I was sure she's going to show me a Mulberry tree. Well, you have a task, Mary. Show me a Mulberry tree even though you lived in Moultrie. I can get away with this, people. I'm from Miami. <laughs> Okay, you see, but, but the God kind of faith, the faith that is not limited to their own circumstances, to their own fears, a faith that is not their own ways, is the faith that we're talking about. It's the God kind of faith that trusts God's adventure, that surrenders to God their opinion. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could. You could see what God wants us to do. You could see and embrace God's vision. You could be part of the changes that God is making in our midst so that we become a vibrant and a vital congregation in this community again and not go back to hospice or go back to Egypt. Otherwise, we will be miserable because we will be in rebellion. Otherwise... We may be judged by self and by God. Oh, it's all of our decisions. Are you going to keep on walking in the shallow faith? Or are we going to take our temperature may not be well, but let's go for a dunk. Let's go for a dunk in the depth of God's truth or the depth of God's mystery. In what God has called us to do, which is to develop a new faith. To grow in such a way that we're not like before because it didn't work. And remember the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different changes. Hello. You know, God, when God has a purpose with God's people, opposition always rises. Always. It's part of the diet. It's part of the meal. Opposition always rises. But God loves the opposition. God loves their concern. 
God sees their lack of faith. Because it's not the work of men and women that we're trying to do here. It is the work of God. I did not make it up. Neither the vision team made it up. It emerged out of all of that. And the youngest and the littlest one of all this team is me. I came after all this was decided to make it happen. God will fulfill God's purposes. There is a promise for a lot of hope. Not a promise for hospice. Not a promise for death. But a promise for a genuine revitalization. A genuine revival. So that we can discover the mission for which we have been saved. And do it. And stop being comfortable in our chairs. And murmur. Paul Borden a great American Baptist minister, director of the region of Oregon and Washington State, was giving me a class one day at Tropical Florida Seminary. And he says that many people, when changes happen in a church, it causes trauma. It is a crisis, especially in our condition where three families came together. How many of you have dealt with a blended family? Can you imagine three <laughs> a blended family, and, and can you imagine three? It's obviously not legal, but can you imagine? It's happening here. Three families coming together. And he says that, that they get used to the way things were in the past. It's like a person who lives in the big city and is accustomed to use public transportation every day. And they go on a bus. And this bus route, they know that bus number 20 goes from point A to point B every single day, seven to ten times a day. And they know the schedule by heart. They actually may know even the transfer corners where they can transfer to go to another route to get to where they're going. I see Soraida smiling because that was the way of the city, right? In Chicago, I used to know those options. How to get to work without having to get, dig the car out of the snow pile. So you take public transportation. But the bus driver... And I've been in buses where this happens, actually. Paul tells the story that the bus driver suddenly gets a call from dispatch. The ones who are controlling the whole system, who have the big springs. You know where all the buses are at all time, all moments. And Paul Borden says, you know, driver, you know, the dispatch calls the driver, gets the orders. Driver, you got to change directions. Your bus is going to now do the 30 route when you get to the corner of 5th and 17th. Oh, we're changing direction, says the boss, meaning that i got to tell my passengers. Dispatch calls the driver. The driver grabs the microphone, and you know how to do um, <clears throat> testing, <clears throat> testing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's why I woke. Uh, and, and, and then he says, uh, uh, folks, uh, I have gotten a call from dispatch, and this bus is changing routes. We're not going the direction that we've been going. We're changing direction. So, if you don't like, or it's not convenient for you where this bus is going, I encourage you to pull the cord and get off the bus. Because we have changed directions. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ and Paul tells us the story in a different way. Paul says it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your mind. 
And as a result of changing your mind, then you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. Because my dear brothers and my lovely sisters, we cannot please God without faith. Amen.